John chapter 7, from verse 53. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let me pray. Father, this morning, may my words be true and helpful. We ask that you would give us a greater trust in your word, a greater love for the Lord Jesus, and a greater assurance that in him and in him alone we can find life. Father, would you do that in us this morning, we pray. Amen. Now, at the end, I'm going to leave five minutes for question time. Uh, if we need more than five minutes, you can come and talk to me over morning tea to answer, answer any more questions that you might have. The reason I think you might have some questions this morning is because I'm about to tell you that I don't think the passage that I just read should be included in your Bibles. Now, if that produces an emotional response in you, good. I want you to feel some scepticism when someone says something like that. Don't just take that and go, oh, okay, it must be true. Uh, it is good for us to, to have a sense of reservation about claims like that. But uh, note this, it's not because I don't like the passage. In fact, I, I really like this passage. I want it to be included. It's not because I don't value God's word. I take really seriously my job to teach you the truth of God's word and I know that I will have to give account to him for what I teach. It's actually because I really value the truth of God's word that I say what I just said. Also know that I'm not alone. Now, this is not some crazy idea that I came up with all by myself. Uh, if you look down in your Bibles, oh, unless you have the King James Version, uh, you will see that this passage is marked off from the rest of the text. It might be in brackets, it might be in italics, 
it will probably have a comment or a footnote that says something like, many early manuscripts do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. Now there's a huge question mark over this passage. And so much so that the vast majority of biblical scholars have concluded that the account of the woman caught in adultery is not original. Which means they do not believe that John wrote these words. It means they do not believe that the early church accepted this text as canonical, as part of scripture. And if that's the case, which I think it is, then we need to think really hard about what we do with this passage. If John didn't write it, and if the early church didn't receive it, then we need to question whether we give it the same authority and status as the rest of Scripture. So what do we do with this passage? Well, here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to spend just a few minutes explaining why I think it's not original. But then I want us to take a look at the passage. We're not going to skip over it, as some people do. We're going to look at it. But as we do that, we're going to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. We're going to see whether what this passage teaches us actually aligns with Scripture. Whether it rings true. Whether it accurately reflects Jesus and his character and his teaching. But first, let me show you the evidence. Now... There's a few things just within the text that smell a little funky. Uh, For starters, including this passage where it is sort of breaks the flow of the story. It makes much more sense to see the rest of chapter 8 as happening on the same day as what we saw last week in chapter 7. I'll explain a little bit more of that next week. But there's also a bunch of words and phrases that are used in this little section that John never uses anywhere else in his gospel. For example, uh, this is the only time that John ever mentions scribes or teachers of the law. Now, if you look at the other gospels, you'll see 57 times there are mentioned the scribes or the teachers of the law. Never in John, except for in this section. It's the same with Jesus being called teacher, We see here that the the scribes and Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they call him teacher. That happens 30 times in the other Gospels, never in John. The idea of the Pharisees testing Jesus, really common in the other Gospels, again, never in John. So there's there's a question mark straight away. Did John actually write this? It doesn't sound like John. It's not the words that he typically uses. But of course, none of that is enough to make us cut it out of the Bible. That doesn't settle the argument. The real evidence comes from the manuscripts. Now, for most of human history, the Bible has been written, or the scripture has been written and copied by hand. We didn't have typewriters, we didn't have printers. Early scripture was copied down by hand. Now, the Bibles that you have in your hands... They've been put together by comparing hundreds and sometimes thousands of these handwritten copies, what we call manuscripts. Now, we don't have the originals. None of the originals of the New Testament are still with us. They would have been just passed around so much that they they just would have been loved to death. Uh, We don't have the originals, but what we do have is copies. Now, amongst 
there's hundreds and thousands of copies that we still have, they're not exactly the same. There are variations. Now, they're in 98% agreement, but there are differences. But because we have so many copies, we can actually compare them to one another and we can, with a fairly high degree of accuracy, actually try and work out what the original would have said. All right. The, the best manuscripts we have are going to be the earliest ones, the ones closest to when John originally wrote. There's a group of manuscripts, we call them the papyri, they're written on papyrus. They're very old. We're talking 3rd and 4th century. So kind of just 150, 200 years after John wrote. Now we still have two papyri that contain almost all of John's gospel. That's them. That's more pages than just those pages. But uh, we have two. They have the whole of John's gospel, which is amazing because some of the papyri just have a few verses. Uh, We have the whole of John's gospel, both of these. They're from less than 200 years after John first wrote. Neither of them have this story in them. Moving on from the papyri, there's another group of manuscripts. They're called the unseals. They're not as old. They're still pretty old, kind of 4th to ninth century. We have 18 of them, sorry, 16 of them. Four of them include this story, but three of them mark it in brackets with an asterisk. They kind of, that indicates they don't think it should actually be there. So of the 18 earliest copies of John's Gospel that we have, only one of them has this story and just kind of treats it as if it belongs there. We also know none of the early church fathers who wrote commentaries on John wrote about this passage. They just kind of skipped straight from 752 to 8.12. And of the manuscripts that do contain this story, they're mostly much later, 10th, 11th century, like a thousand years later. They don't even agree on where it goes. Most of them that do have it, have it here in John's Gospel. Some of it Some of them have it elsewhere in John's Gospel, and a few of them have it at the end of the book of Luke. So you put all of this together, and you have a fairly compelling case to say that this story wasn't originally written by John. It wasn't in John's Gospel. Now, it raises the question of how it got there. We don't know. The most likely possibility is that it was a story written in some other writing, and that some editor decided to include it, it doesn't sound like it was something that was just made up. So there's a lot of people who say, John didn't write it, it's not supposed to be in his gospel, but we have no reason to doubt its, historic, like its historical accuracy. But the question is, what do we do with it? It doesn't matter how true it is, if it wasn't part of John's gospel, we do have to question whether we should treat it as scripture. Now, what we don't do We don't freak out. You can still trust your Bibles. The the thousands of manuscripts that have been carefully studied and compared to compile your modern Bibles, that, that has been done to such an extent that we can be so confident of what the originals said. There are lots of variations amongst the manuscripts, but most of them agree. And none of them cause us to... Uh, doubt any core doctrine of the gospel. 
The very fact that your Bibles have this comment in them should actually give you some confidence. The fact that they're willing to be open and honest and say, early manuscripts don't have this, should lead you to trust that your translators are doing all they can to ensure that you have the true Word of God in your hands. So don't freak out. You can trust your Bibles. Uh, What we do do when we get to a passage like this is we read carefully. We compare it with the rest of Scripture. We check to see whether it teaches something that aligns with the things that we can be certain about. So, what does this story teach us? I think the main thing it teaches us is that there are two ways of dealing with sin. Our story begins with a sinner. Sorry, I'll get rid of that so you stop reading the Greek. Our story begins with a sinner. Jesus has come to the temple to teach. The crowds are gathering around him once again. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, people gather around. They want to hear him. But he's interrupted by a group of Pharisees and scribes who bring in a woman caught in adultery. This woman has sinned. She's been caught in the act, as it were. She is guilty. And so what do these Pharisees do? They make her stand in front of the crowd. They parade her in the courts of the temple. They expose her to shame. And then they contemplate her punishment. Ending her life by pelting her with rocks. There almost seems to be a sense of triumph amongst these Jewish leaders that they have caught her. But what they really want is to catch Jesus. It's no secret that the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. They, they hate him. They hate that people are flocking to him. They hate his grace and compassion. They're, they're willing to use this woman as collateral damage in their quest to crush Jesus. And so they set a trap. Verse 4, that's teacher, they say. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? Puts Jesus in a very difficult spot. You see, they're quite right. The law of Moses does say that any Jew caught in the act of adultery should be put to death. You can see it for yourself in Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Although what's interesting is that the law emphasizes the fact that both the man and the woman must be put to death. It takes two to tango. Both are equally guilty. But somehow, somehow these Pharisees have caught a woman in the act of adultery all by herself. No man in sight. It's remarkable, isn't it? Now, what's Jesus going to say? If he rejects the law of Moses then they have all they need to convict him of being a godless heretic. If he says, no, Moses was wrong, he's going to be in trouble. If he agrees with the law, well, he creates even more problems because Jesus has become quite popular for his care and compassion. If he's seen in the temple courts approving of this poor woman's execution, he's certainly going to take a hit to his popularity. And his reputation. 
But not only that, uh, he'll also provoke the anger of the Roman authorities because they forbid the Jews from carrying out capital punishment. So they've got him in a tight spot. Agree with Moses? He's going to make enemies of the people and of the Roman authorities. Disagree with Moses and, well, he's going to identify himself as a godless heretic. They think they've trapped Jesus. What will Jesus do? Well, the first thing he does is really weird. He bends down and starts writing in the dust with his finger. We don't know why. We don't know what he wrote. Don't ask that in question time. Uh, When they push him for an answer, Jesus replies in verse 7, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, that's a bit over the top, don't you think? He doesn't say, oh, that's from a different time and place. Those rules don't apply anymore. Not at all. In fact, Jesus upholds the law. The Pharisees say, the law says we must put her to death, to which Jesus says, go right ahead. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, in one sentence, he exposes the inadequacy of man-made religion. These Jewish leaders came to the temple to try to deal with the problem of sin. They know that sin is abhorrent to God. They know that sin cuts people off from God. They know that sin, when it goes unchecked, can spread among the people. They came to the temple to try to deal with this woman's sin. But what they were unprepared to do was to deal with their own. They passed judgment on her, forgetting that they too are deserving of judgment. They exposed her shame while keeping their own hidden away. And when, they, when these Pharisees did, well, it continues to be done by religious people everywhere today. Because all religions, no matter the kind, all religion inevitably leads to pride and judgmentalism. Any system that teaches you that you need to work to achieve holiness, that you need to do enough to be worthy of God, that you by your own efforts are capable of becoming moral or right or pure. Any system that teaches that will make those who think they've achieved it proud and arrogant. It will make those who think they have failed feel ashamed And it will make the proud look down on the ashamed with absolute disgust. And you see it all the time. You see it even in churches. People who claim to belong to Christ passing judgment on the sinners they see around them. Forgetting that the first step in belonging to Christ is acknowledging your own sin. I saw in the news this week a story out of Goulburn where... An event called Rainbow Storytime, where a drag queen reads stories to kids, had been cancelled. I read that story. My first thought was, that's probably a good thing. I don't think our children need drag queens reading them stories. Uh, but then I paused when I saw why the event had been cancelled. 
Goulburn City Council cancelled this event because of threats of violence that had been made to staff at the library by community members who were opposed to the event. Now, I have no idea, and I, I hope this suspicion is wrong, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the people making those threats were people who claimed to be Christian. And I wouldn't be surprised because I've seen that before. From people holding up posters at Mardi Gras that says God hates gays to the kids in my year four religion class a few years ago who screamed at their classmates who don't do religion, you're going to hell. We do it. Religion without grace, religion without Christ will inevitably cause us to pronounce judgment on the speck in our brother's eye while ignoring the plank in our own. Man-made religion cannot deal with sin, but Jesus can. Let you who are without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. The dejected Pharisees leave one by one, and the woman is left standing there with Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Now it's so important that we hear both things that Jesus said to the woman. Because some people will go away and hear only, neither do I condemn you. And they instantly think, great, Jesus says sin doesn't matter anymore. He's not interested in it. Other people will go away hearing only, go now, leave your life of sin, and they think that Jesus expects us to work our way to sinlessness. The first person hears mercy, but not judgment. The second person hears judgment, but not mercy. But only Jesus brings these two things perfectly together. To the woman who stands before him in her guilt... Jesus says, I do not condemn you. He offers mercy. He offers her a chance. But he also says, go and leave your life of sin. He does not condemn her, but he doesn't condone her sin either, does he? Judgment is coming, and those who continue to sin will face God's wrath. But Jesus comes and offers mercy to those who stand condemned already. And friends, it's only when we hear both of these statements together, it's only when we hear coming from the lips of the one who is without sin himself, and yet who was condemned to death, so that we could be spared condemnation. It's only when you understand Jesus' response to sin that sin no longer rules your life and that you can overcome both shame and pride and arrogance. Friends, there are two ways to deal with sin. You can go down the religious route You can try to make yourself pure before God. You can look down on everyone else as sinful and judge them 
And you'll either feel proud and arrogant or when you fail, you'll feel completely ashamed. Or friends, you can come to Jesus. The one who did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The one who comes to people who stand condemned already and offers them his grace. Bringing this all together. Do I think this story is original? No, I don't. Do I think it should be in our Bibles? No, I don't. Do I think it happened? I, don't, I can't be sure. I'm inclined to think that it did. But even if it didn't, it is a story which accurately portrays Jesus and his character and his teaching. This is 100% what we expect of Jesus because it is 100% what we get of Jesus everywhere else in John. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter what you do with this story, whether you believe this story or not, because it doesn't teach us anything that we can't find elsewhere in the Gospels. And so this morning, let me invite you to come to Jesus with your sin. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn you. In your sin, you are already condemned. He came to save you. He came to deal with your sin in a way that religion never could. He came to be publicly shamed and put to death. He came to stand in place of this unnamed woman. He came to stand in your place. He came to be condemned so that you might live. Will you come to him? Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you for this passage. And whether or not it belongs in John's gospel, we thank you that it it shows for us a picture of what Jesus is truly like and what we know is true of Jesus. We thank you that he himself said that he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. We thank you that before him, though we are sinful, we find grace and mercy. We thank you that in him alone are we able to deal with our sin. And so, Lord, where we are, where we have tendencies or where we have in the past tried the religious route of dealing with sin where we have tried in our own efforts to be good enough for you, whether we have convinced ourselves that we are moral and right and good. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, by your gospel, remind us that there is nothing that we can bring to you that would make us worthy of your love. There is nothing that we can do that would make us deserving of your reward. It is all because Jesus was condemned for us, because he was publicly shamed, because he died that we might live. Help us to know that. Help us to live by that each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.